Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, reporter and editor extraordinaire Michelle Rendells has a segment on a Nevada-based federal judge declaring an immigration law unconstitutional. Michelle talks with a history professor from UCLA whose research on the origins of the law helped influence the judge who ruled that the law had racist roots and disproportionately affected Latinos. After that, reporter Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez brings us a story about a new vegetarian coffee shop on the Walker River Indian Reservation. Owner Andrea Martinez discusses her journey and why she decided to bring plant-based and meatless health foods to the middle of rural Nevada. At the end of the show, I call Humberto Sanchez, our DC reporter, to talk about the infrastructure bill, what the budget is looking like as we enter the last third of the year, and more goings on in DC this week. Returning to the U.S. after deportation carries a major criminal penalty in the U.S., as much as two decades in prison. Entering the country illegally or re-entering it after being deported accounts for a full two-third of prosecutions in the federal court system. But immigrant advocates have long questioned why the penalty is so severe, whether it's clogging up the court system, and whether the law itself, known as Section 1326, has racist origins. That perspective got a major boost last week when Nevada-based federal judge Miranda Dew issued a landmark ruling against Section 1326, saying it was unconstitutional and disproportionately affects Latinos. Dew's order cites the research of Kelly Little Hernandez, a historian and professor at UCLA who studies America's immigration law history. Little's research traces things back nearly a hundred years when the precursor of today's laws was drafted. She spoke with the Indie Matters podcast about her findings. So what's known as Section 1326, which is the criminalization, a felony, of entering the United States without authorization after deportation, first became law in 1929. And it was entered into um, law by two people, really. It was the Secretary of Labor at the time, James Davis, and a senator from South Carolina, a man named Coleman Livingston Bleese. And these two men were diehard white supremacists, one a eugenicist and one a strong advocate, in particular, of anti-Black racism. He advocated lynchings from the floor of Congress. These are the two men who gave us this piece of legislation. It was their intention that it would punish Mexican immigrants in particular, non-white immigrants coming from south of the U.S.-Mexico border in general from arriving in the United States without permission. That permission would be granted so long as people were coming just as workers and just temporarily to come and harvest and pick some crops across the West and then go back to their homes south of the border. When people began to come here and to stay and to become Mexican-Americans or Latinx-Americans, that's when these legislators and the Secretary of Labor developed this piece of legislation to punish them and then to send them back. Human rights advocates question whether the strong penalties against entering the country have a true deterrent effect. In many cases, people crossing the border are desperately trying to rejoin family members in the U.S. after being deported. Federal statistics show that in the past two decades, anywhere from 86 to 97% of people apprehended at the border are of Mexican descent. 
The federal government argued that the statistics are a function of how the U.S. shares a border with Mexico. It also argued that national security and economic concerns and the general patterns of employment were at play, rather than outright discrimination. But Du said she found those arguments unpersuasive. Her order notes that President Harry Truman vetoed an update of the Immigration and Nationality Act in 1952, saying it perpetuated injustices from the 1920s. Congress overrode the veto. Congress pushes forward regardless and makes some tweaks and some changes, especially as it pertains to European and Asian immigration, but doubles down on the restrictions against Mexican immigration, in particular, the the penalties and the punishment related to crossing the border without authorization. You also have to remember in 1952, you have a so-called wetback bill that is signed just before this new legislation. You are almost, you're getting into the throes of the rise of Operation Wetback, which happens in 1954. So it's a moment in which people are thinking deeply about Mexican immigration. They're seeing undocumented immigration as Mexican immigration, and they're naming it, quote, as wetback immigration. And so when Congress refuses to redress, to discuss, to debate the 1929 legislation, um, what they essentially are doing is accepting the premise that they want to maintain a regime that is punitive toward Mexican immigrants who cross the border without authorization. The ruling could have far-reaching impacts as one of the most commonly used federal statutes. The Department of Justice has filed notice that it plans to appeal the ruling, although the actual language of the appeal hasn't been filed yet and the lawyer leading the case did not return a request for comment from the Indy. As a historian who's been working on the issue of the criminalization of immigration for more than two decades, Little Hernandez said she was shocked, surprised, and elated that a judge ruled in support of her position that the law governing immigration was fundamentally racist and was designed to fall more harshly on Latinos. But I was also thrilled and elated by the incredible subtlety and the texture and the richness, the power of the ruling. Um, This is a judge who seriously took in the evidence, considered the legal frameworks in which she is working, and the the history at play every day in our district courts around 1325 and 1326. And so to have that kind of audience for what is fundamentally a historical argument for me as a historian who's been working on this for many years was incredibly gratifying. For more on the decision, read thenevadaindependent.com. This story was written and produced by Michelle Rendells and edited by Joey Lovato. About 90 miles east of Reno lies the town of Schurz and the Walker River Reservation. The nearest large grocery store is more than 20 miles away. Schurz is considered a food desert by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. But a recently opened small coffee shop on U.S. Route 95 aims to bridge the gap. The owner of Next Evolution Coffee Shop, Andrea Martinez, spoke with reporter Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez about her mission with the coffee shop and more. Inside the small, old, renovated building, Martinez and her sister are hard at work. They prepare acai bowls, sandwiches, and lattes from their meat and dairy-free menu. 
Vegetarian and plant-based food and drink options are a novelty in this part of the remote Nevada desert. I made my business plan because between Vegas and Reno, there's not really a drive-through coffee shop, on the highway especially, and then also having healthy food options available. I honestly don't know if there's any drive-through places that have healthy food options because I try to find one all the time, but I can't. She said her own journey to find health and well-being inspired her to share what she learned with others in the community. I came from a family to where we they were unhealthy, they had diabetes, they had heart disease, there was alcoholism, drug addiction in my family. And I, it was a struggle because I was never taught about health and wellness, especially how important mental and emotional wellness was. So I kind of started off on a rough path and I was a single mom, like living on food stamps in like a really small apartment. And then I had two kids and I just knew that I didn't want to be that person. Martinez added exercise to her routine, but still felt like she was in a rut. She began a meditation and yoga practice, leading her to realize she needed deeper healing. It was there she found purpose and connected with her Paiute culture. Respecting everybody and being one, and like our culture talks about being one with the earth and living in balance, and that made a lot of sense. And so actually loving people, giving back, being grateful, and... I guess just serving people and living to serve. I found out that was my purpose in life and I just want people to be happy. She said her business has been more successful than she expected, but faced many challenges. From a reservation-wide closure during the COVID-19 pandemic to difficulties with obtaining a bank loan. Uh, I didn't get a business loan at all. I was actually denied my business loan because why, how would a coffee shop work in a, such a small community, especially a vegetarian coffee shop? I guess all the odds were against us. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're native. We're on a reservation. Like we had red signs saying like we were closed and I said, no, we're going to open anyway. But I think knowing inside yourself what's right and then following that, you can never go wrong. Martinez also faced initial resistance to her meat and dairy-free menu, but it eventually took, and now, people recommend the coffee shop to their family and friends off the reservation, something Martinez takes pride in as it gets to the root of indigenous culture. People actually found out that eating healthy can taste good and that it will make them feel better. And so we started, it just like, it was like a ball just kept rolling downhill and it got faster and faster and faster and people... They, they've come to really like the healthy options here. And then I think they're actually starting to realize that they're lucky because there's no place like this. A lot of our diets were plants and veggies and then fish was a huge staple. But like being as the harvest isn't as rich during the winter times, we would go to meat. So I understand. And that's the part where we live in balance because we have what we needed from the earth when it was available to us. It's also a step further toward food sovereignty, having options and control of food sources available, a growing priority for tribes. Researchers argue that federal programs like the Food Distribution Program on Indian Reservations actually limit access to healthy, sustainable and culturally relevant meals. 
That being said, all of Nevada's 27 reservation and colonies participate in the program. We started a tribal food sovereignty program last year, which I was a part of, and we planted trees and did zucchinis and like did recipes for the community. And people are really interested in that, and I think our business helps people realize that you can incorporate your indigenous foods into your recipe, like you don't have to be afraid of it. I think our culture is coming back and people are realizing that we can't rely on anybody else to bring our culture back, it has to be us. Martinez represents a growing share of Native American-owned businesses across the country. According to the U.S. Census, there were more than 24,000 businesses owned by American Indian or Alaskan Native people in 2018. Despite the growth, Martinez is still one of few Native American women in that category who own businesses. Honestly, I think about that on a daily basis because somebody like me wasn't meant to make it. Like the way, the history of our people, we were never meant to make it. And so being where I am at right now as a Native American woman business owner on a reservation, I feel really blessed and really lucky. And I, it's my hope that it, this just creates ripples across not only our community, but our world and in Native country. To hear more from Martinez and her struggles and success in opening the coffee shop, check out Jasmine's full story on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. All right, and so I am here with our man in D.C., Humberto Sanchez. Uh, we are doing the D.C. debrief, which we haven't done in a couple weeks, actually. It's, it's been a minute, but Humberto, we always start with the weather. How is the weather in D.C.? It's blazing hot. It's like a, a giant's armpit. I like that. I like Super that metaphor. Hot. Super hot and really damp. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is not too hot in Reno. It's been like 70s and 80s, which is nice, but you can't go outside because of how bad the smoke is. I think we're going on week three of, I can just pretty much stare at the sun and it's not gonna hurt my eyes because the smoke is so thick. <laughs> and I've heard you guys actually have some of our smoke too, right? Yeah, you can, it's it's definitely hazy. It's it's not as bad obviously there, but you, it's definitely hazier than it would be otherwise. Yes, but anyway, let's talk about, let's talk about what's going on in Congress this week. Starting with, obviously we've been talking about it for, for months now, but the infrastructure bill has more happenings. What's going on with the infrastructure bill? The infrastructure bill was a big part of the debate on the budget plan that the Democrats voted on in the House. So the week before, the Senate cleared the budget after it did the infrastructure package, which uh, again is $1.2 trillion, which is, is a big, big deal. And it got 19 Republicans to go along with, with all Democrats on that. And so it comes here to the House and Speaker Nancy Pelosi had a decision to make, you know, whether to hold on to that bill because Democrats really want this budget bill that's coming up. They need to pass this budget plan in order to basically trigger a process that allows the Senate Democrats to pass a $3.5 trillion bill full of their agenda items with only Democratic votes, basically, on a simple majority. If you're following along at home, you got to pass the budget bill to get the $3.5 trillion and uh, a group of 10 moderates in the House who really were, were very pleased with the infrastructure bill. It was bipartisan. They 
basically held hostage the budget resolution to get a vote on infrastructure. That held up the process there for about a day. And Speaker Pelosi, she needs their votes, right? To pass this, she can lose only three votes and still be able to pass legislation. So these 10 Democrats said, we're not going to vote for the budget resolution until we vote on the infrastructure bill. There was a, a big standoff, intense negotiations behind the scenes going on there. And ultimately, there was a resolution where the, the moderates agreed to support the budget resolution. And Speaker Pelosi agreed to give a date certain on when they would get a vote on the infrastructure bill, which is September 27th. And they also got assurances that on the budget, with that $3.5 trillion, that whatever the House does, it will have been worked out with the Senate beforehand. So in essence, what that does is that that could definitely lower that $3.5 trillion price tag because we have a Senator Joe Manchin, we have Senator Kirsten Sinema saying that they are not comfortable with that price tag. They think it's, it's a little too much. But then on the other hand, we have Bernie Sanders coming out uh, recently to say that $3.5 trillion is what I negotiated. He's actually the chairman of the budget committee. And he, he said he negotiated that, that price tag and that that's the one they should do. So already you have a, a major conflict. On the House side, it was interesting. Uh, I was talking to, to Representative Stephen Hortsford in here, and he was saying he was a little critical of the moderates to, and said that they were basically arguing over semantics because any of that money in the infrastructure bill, that $1.2 trillion, that can't be spent till uh, the beginning of October, which is the beginning of the next fiscal year anyway. So there was no reason to get all threatening about, about the budget bill. Nevertheless, I was talk, also talking to Representative Susie Lee this week, and she said the opposite. She said that it was, she was very happy with the fact that they got a date certain for the infrastructure bill. She'd been on a few letters calling for an immediate action on that bill. She feels strongly that that would help Nevada very much. That the sooner the better was her thinking. And she also, I asked her if about the $3.5 trillion and she basically conceded that that number could change by saying the, the right number is whatever can, can Congress can pass. So it's going to be interesting. There's going to be a lot of tense negotiations among Democrats over this $3.5 trillion package that they're going to try to write by the, the middle of next month. They're probably not going to meet that deadline. And, and a lot of our delegation is going to be involved in that. We have Senator Cortez Masto, who is on the Senate Finance Committee. They'll be coming up with the tax portion of that bill. We have Representative Horsford, who's on the Ways and Means Committee in the House. That's also the tax panel here that's going to write the tax provisions of the bill. These next couple, these next few weeks are going to be a big deal. Yeah. And when we talk about the budget, you know, and how closely tied it is with the, the infrastructure bill, they're very kind of hand in hand. But we've been talking a lot about how the infrastructure bill, like what it could do for Nevada, right? You talk about the I-11 and, and, and the I-80 and, and, you know, all of the passways through Nevada. But also when you talk about the budget, what is that going to do for Nevada, right? I, I think that's something we don't really think about a whole lot. It's just the general budget. How does that impact our state? This is uh, outside of regular appropriations. So this is a whole other huge investment in, in, into domestic policies. It's, it's called a reconciliation package, and that's the basically the budget process that allows a simple majority in the Senate. In that $3.5 trillion, there's just a ton of things that our, our, member, our Democratic members have flagged as really important. Paid and family medical leave would be a part of that. Expanding Medicare to include dental and vision and hearing benefits that, that currently don't, don't apply to Medicare. A universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds would be part of that. A pathway to citizenship for, for DREAMers and TPS recipients would, would get that. There's just a myriad of, of things in there. There's also going to be affordable housing money in there. There's going to be an electrifying the, the federal fleet of vehicles for both the, the post office and non-post office vehicles. There's going to be 
funding for, for Native health programs, Native American housing programs. There's $18 billion for upgrades to, to, to the Veterans Affairs facilities. We have a lot of veterans in Nevada. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff in here. It, it, the, the, the Democratic proponents of the bill like to call it uh, a once-in-a-generation type of investment. And that could be the case. I mean, it could be uh, like as big as the New Deal. It's, 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 it's a massive amount of money, especially on top of all of this pandemic funding that we've seen coming down the pipe. And that's also uh, one of the reasons why, or the main reason why Republicans oppose it. They think that this is way too much money and th- it threatens to just jack up the deficit and the, and the debt and also will will heat up the economy to the point where there'll be serious inflation. And then that could lead to a recession. I mean, it could be, it could be really bad. So moving from talking about the infrastructure and the budget and all this money and where it's going to be going and what it could be doing, right, if any of this passes uh, the way that it's presented right now. But there was something else presented this week, which was voting rights. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. The way that I see it, at least, is that there's been a lot of talk about voter fraud. Voting rights has always been a big Democratic agenda, but this seems like kind of a way to push back against that as kind of the, the, the ebbs and flows of politics goes. What's going on with this voting rights bill that's been presented? So it's definitely a pushback against that. We have 14 or 15 states in the country that have, have changed their voting laws. But this is also a pillar in the Democratic platform to try to make it easier to vote. And they, they see what's being done in, in those mostly southern states as limiting that, that constitutional right to vote. So the, the, the bill they passed, this is the second time, actually, they've, they've passed a voting rights bill. They passed another one earlier this year, which was way broader. So the 1965 law established which states were subject to Department of Justice preclearance. So if they'd made any changes to their voting rights, they would have to go to the Department of Justice first to get the okay to to be able to change any of their voting practices. And in 2013, there was a Supreme Court case that eliminated that that oversight. And so this would restore it. And I think in order to to make it less targeted to the South, I think any state that changes their voting rights would be required to get preclearance from the Department of Justice. Yeah. yeah. Well, and we've had some bills in, in the state legislature here in Nevada that have changed how voting is done from getting rid of the caucus to to moving dates up to changing how easy it is to access mail-in voting and stuff like that. So that'll be interesting to see how that impacts the state as it moves forward. That's absolutely right. And it's interesting to bring that up because I was talking to Mark Amaday about this bill. He voted against it. This Again, this split the, the House members on party lines. He said that he sees this kind of as a, a power grab by the Democrats to try to kind of uh, set up the rules to favor them. He thinks that there's no real issue with voting rights. And, and he points to the fact that uh, turnout is high, as high as it ever has been among, amongst minorities. He also, uh, the states to handle this, traditionally it has been handled by the state to oversee voting practices. And, uh, and he admitted, he said, while he, he wasn't pleased with what happened in Nevada in terms of the changing of the voting rules he 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 was very critical that they he thinks that they changed it a little too without much notice and it was pretty abrupt in his opinion just to send everybody on the on the registration roll of ballot but he said at least it was done by the state and uh, which he appreciated it and while he wouldn't have made that change himself the the fact that the state did it was was more legitimate than having the federal government come away in and, and force them to do something okay so we've, we've talked about voting rights we've talked about infrastructure we've talked about the budget but uh, earmarks, something that you wrote about last week. Talk to me about what's going on with the earmarks. The Nevada delegation has some specific ones that they, they've brought up. Tell me about that. We got a list of earmarks from uh, Senator Cortez Masto and Senator Rosen. And earmarks typically refer to members of Congress being able to direct appropriations funds from the annual spending bills to specific projects. 
first time they've done it since 2011. They were banned in 2011 by when Republicans took over the House because there have been a few high profile scandals, including uh, the construction of a bridge to nowhere in Alaska, which was a, a big deal. And it's it put people off of earmarks. I thought that they thought it was unfair and, and, and illegal. <laughs> but it, the practice has come back. It has been rebranded, for lack of a better term. It, they call it community project funding. And, all, and part of the new rules of, of doing this is you have to put everything online for a, a period of time. There's uh, no, no, no for-profit companies can receive any funds. So yeah, so the two senators put their projects up and they're identical, 71 projects. They're going to asking for $205 million. And the most expensive one was to pave a 24-mile road in Nye County, which, is, uh, which cost $31 million. The second highest earmark requested was the Ely Downtown Upgrade Project, which would receive $26 million, $3.1 million for the medical school to establish a, a toxicology laboratory that would provide drug testing for public health and public safety agencies. So there, there was a ton of, of projects that they were seeking. And it's in conjunction with the House. The House members also made several requests, not nearly as much money, because obviously they were only covering their district, whereas the senators were covering the whole state. But this is a revised process and revised program that they're doing here with this, with the earmark. We'll see how it works. It could all get scrapped if there's another scandal. <laughs> and so the last thing that I want to talk about is there's there's been the, the pullout from Afghanistan and the kind of the fallout from that. It's It's been in the news everywhere. Um, so I'm just curious, what is the mood in the Capitol right now? Um, it's it's a, there's a lot of, of anger and sadness. I mean, watching the images on TV are, are just heartbreaking. Everyone is thinking about all the people there. And and there's a lot of criticism against the president and how the pullout was done and, and, and basically how he talked about it as well, which didn't appear to, in certain circumstances, match up what was happening with reports on the ground. There, there was also a lot of criticism of the previous administration, which set the deadline, even from, from certain Republicans that can be labeled uh, not a fans of the former president. A lot of people are, are coming to the realization that there was no good way to do it. Though some Republicans are, see it as, as a, a good wedge issue for 2022, which is going to happen. And particularly minority leader uh, Kevin McCarthy thinks that's going to be a, a rich issue. And he, he talks about it as often as, as often as he can. But mostly people are very sad. It's, a, it's very tragic what we're seeing happening. And everyone is eager to see Americans get out and, and people who help Americans get out. It's it, day by day, we're coming up on that deadline. And, and people are also waiting to see whether the president decides to extend the, the August 31st deadline. I mean, that's going to be a big deal. Will it require more forces? And, and Congress is, I think, asking a lot of questions. And there's going to be hearings about it, too. So we're, we're, we'll stay tuned for that. Jackie Rosen is on the Senate Armed Services Committee. So I'm sure she'll be taking part of that on those. And so Stephen Horsford is also on the House Armed Services Committee. There's, this is far from over. Yeah. All right. Well, Humberto, thanks for kind of giving us a unique perspective and for informing us about everything that's going on in D.C. as always. Uh, and we appreciate you talking to us this week. And, and hopefully, like I said, we stop sending you all of our smoke. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fun getting smoke signals. But uh, yeah, if you can cut it out, we'd, we'd appreciate it. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Sure thing, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Michelle Rendells, Kelly Lytle Hernandez, Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez, Andrea Martinez, and Humberto Sanchez for being on the show this week. We also wanted to thank Riley Snyder and Michelle Rendells for their editorial help on the show. They also help edit our monthly newsletter, Soundcheck, that you should definitely subscribe to if you're not getting enough of the podcast. 
Make sure to leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and email us with questions, comments, concerns, favorite drawer handle styles, best pencil lead thickness for architectural drafting, or whatever else you want to tell us about at joey at the nvindy.com or jacob at the nvindy.com. The music in today's episode was from the band People With Bodies, with additional music from Storyblocks and some from our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Make sure to leave us a review wherever you listen and email us with questions, comments, concerns, favorite drawer handles. I can't say that. Drawer handle style. Drawer handle. Dude, that's impossible to say. I did this to myself. You did. Drawer handle style. Favorite drawer handle style. All right.